course. It's, it's really good to, uh, to look at God's Word. I was just um, reading through Ephesians. I'm picking up where Dylan left off last week. And I was thanking Dylan this morning over text just for setting me up so nicely because he did all the hard work. I was looking at the passage. I mean, I read through the context and everything and studied the passage he went over too. But it's like, man, like he had the harder passage. I get the easy stuff. So thanks, Dylan. Appreciate that. Um, you can do that for me anytime you want to. Um, so anyways, I was reading through Ephesians, and I was reading it out loud when I, was, I had some time at home um, yesterday by myself, and I'm like, I'm just going to read through Ephesians. I didn't read through exactly straight through, but throughout the day, kind of over the course of time, just would take chapters or chunks and just read it out loud. And um, I don't know if it was really on purpose. I mean, I guess it was on purpose. I chose to do it, but I wasn't really doing that with any sort of thinking, like, I'm going to read it out loud for this or that purpose. I was, I was just doing it. Um, and I realized something that is actually really helpful to do that because obviously when Paul writes these letters, um, most of his, we say the readers of Paul, but here's the thing about it. Most, most people were not literate. They couldn't read. So those who could read the letter would read the letter out loud. And that's how Paul is thinking about, uh, his letter when he writes, he's thinking of it being read and being received in that way. You know, it does make a difference. And I, so this is just kind of an aside, but at the start, but I encourage you to try that sometime when you're reading through, um, letters, I mean, the new Testament in general, they're all that way, but, uh, particularly the letters of Paul, it, what struck me is that there's a certain tone to the letter of Ephesians that Ephesians that's somewhat unique, really. Um, I mean, Paul, you think of like, you know, Philippians, he's very joyful and so forth. Um, he talks about rejoicing over and over again, and so that's there. But in Ephesians, the whole thing, but especially the first three chapters, um, is kind of nicely divided into three, three chapters and another three chapters, mostly praise and, or praise and instruction and then more commandments and so forth, Christian living in the second half. But anyways, the letter as a whole is really, there's this exalted, lofty language. It's as if Paul is grasping well, actually, it's, he is grasping for words. In some instances, he coins new words. He, he can't, the, it's like the Greek language doesn't exhaust, cannot exhaust what he's trying to say, so he makes up new words. <laughs> he combines existing words to form new words, and we'll look at one of those um, in the text this morning. But um, anyways, I, I just encourage you to read the letters out loud uh, at times, because it really does help. It really is a helpful exercise to do to kind of get the feel and the flavor. And I found my own heart sort of filled as I was, you know, speaking these things, just saying them out loud, like, wow, like it really does something for your spirit to hear these words. Because sometimes your eyes kind of glaze over words when you're just reading in your head, you know, but when your mouth kind of, you're forcing your mouth and your mind to work, it does something for you. So anyways, that's not the point of what we're doing this morning. I just want to encourage you because I found that encouraging myself. Um, so we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter three. You can turn there. Um, of course, Dylan covered verses 14 through 19, and my job this morning is going to be to finish this out um, doing verses 20 and 21. So why don't we pray um, just briefly again, um, because, not because we, we have to, but we need the Lord. So let's pray and ask him to help us. I need the Lord. I know that. Um, Lord, uh, we come before you this morning, uh, a God full of grace and exalted above the heavens. Um, your son is there, seated above all the powers that are um, and above every name that is named, your name is there, placarded across the, the heavens that Christ is Lord, um, to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, we just uh, want to exalt and exult in Christ this morning and see through our brother Paul, uh, through the things he went through, that he was able to write this, this magnificent doxology that came out of his own experiences of, of knowing you and walking with you and having, a, having uh, in wisdom a revelation uh, of, of you and something beyond just um, textbook learning, but he actually walked with you and, and had your spirit in a, in a way that we can sort of only um, long for, Lord, but, but he, he paid a price for that, Lord, and I pray that you would help us to have that same desire just to do whatever it takes to know you and even the fellowship of your sufferings. Um, but Lord, uh, this morning just give me clarity to speak and wisdom and what to say, and uh, give all these saints of yours ears to hear and eyes to see. And we definitely want to pray for any in here who don't know you, that you would make this a landmark day for them, Lord, that they would hear that you are, there is a God uh, who is overall, and that, uh, that, he is, that you have acted in history for the sake of sinners, to rescue sinners and bring them to yourself, um, reconcile us to you. 
And uh, that's a true message. It is the message. And we we'll just pray that you would save them. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so, like I was saying, in, in a letter, this letter, Ephesians, this shot through with praise. I mean, especially chapter 1 is just like the whole thing is just magnificently structured. I was telling Michelle on the way here, I'm kind of, you know, going into this preparation for, for this, I was kind of intimidated. I've always been sort of intimidated by Ephesians. Anyone else kind of intimidated by Paul? Like, he, he stacks up words. He has these, especially in Ephesians, these long sentences in the Greek. You're like, I don't know where he is. Like, what's going on here? But it can be sort of overload. You know, you're like, I got to slow down and I got to really think about this. And Ephesians is kind of like that. You know, it's sort of, it's overload on purpose. Um, so I was sort of intimidated, not to mean that, not to say that I dislike Ephesians or something, but after studying Ephesians and spe- specifically this passage, I was struck with the fact that I think Ephesians is really one of my favorite letters of Paul, one of my favorite, you know, writings of the New Testament, because Paul is, he's really bearing his heart in an unfettered way. It doesn't seem like, seem like there are all these, um, problems in the church that he's dealing with. Some people, I'm not going to get into this, some people debate, is he really writing to just the church at Ephesus, or is it a circular letter? It's, I mean, it could be both. I don't know, but obviously his letters are meant to be read by all the churches, so he's, he's thinking about all the churches no matter what when he writes a letter, whether it be Romans or Galatians or whatever, but in Ephesians, he seems to be sort of not constrained by situations in the church or problems in the church that arise, like the Corinthian church. You know, it's like you almost get the feeling with Corinthians, especially 1 Corinthians, that Paul would like to write a different kind of letter, but he can't. He has to write a letter that is necessary, is, is um, you know, required by the circumstances in the church. And that's not what Ephesians is. Ephesians is not that way. It's a letter that Paul really wants to write um, because he just opens up his heart, and it's, it's like he's just bearing his heart for the gospel and the glories of Christ in a way that he really doesn't in any other letter, I think is safe, safe to say or correct to say. Um, and especially in the first three, three chapters of the letter. Um, so it's fitting that Paul would wrap up the first half of the letter, you know, chapters 1 through 3, with a doxology, which is in uh, 20 through 21 of chapter 3. And this doxology pulls together some of the themes he's already introduced while implicitly moving us along to the next section where he's going to focus on what we might usually call Christian living, the commandments, the things you ought to do. But Paul never lose, loses sight. It's sort of pushing both ways, you know, like... So this doxology is pulling stuff, you know, that's already been said. He's pulling that along with him, and he's pushing ahead to what's to come. And that's the way we ought to always read Paul. Uh, when he starts out his letter, especially in the first few verses, he often packs in, sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly, something he's going to unpack along the way. Um, that's a common way that Paul writes. Um, so it's always good to read in context. So again, reading the letter as a whole is very helpful. Um, I was talking to a co-worker recently uh, who's a Christian and, and she was saying, yeah, I have the verse of the day and, you know, on her probably Bible app or something. And I was just encouraging her. I said, we well, you know the scripture is always, always good to read the scriptures, you know, but I was encouraging her to read in context because, wow, you can really get off in the weeds uh, with some crazy stuff when you don't read in context. Um, so that's an encouragement for us too, not to be too myopic in our reading, you know, um, it's always good to, I mean, it's great sometimes to study a word or, or a passage, but always situated in the context. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning to some degree. Now, Dylan did a lot of this for us last week, so I'm not going to do that in an extensive way. Um, so uh, one factor that's really easy, though, to lose sight of is that Paul's writing these, all these lofty words in, in Ephesians from a prison cell, right? So um, the, the prison epistles are Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. Now, these are some of the most encouraging letters of Paul, but they're also written from prison. Is that, is that crazy to you? I mean, it's just crazy, you know? He's writing these letters that he really couldn't have written in any, any other way. I mean, he probably didn't have time to write a letter like this, uh, except now he's got time because he's sitting there doing nothing in prison, you know, shackled uh, to the wall and had guards around him and everything, um, if we go with what it says in Acts about how they uh, treated the apostles. That's, that's the situation he's in. Um, so it's easy to lose sight of that, and, and this is not a prison in the 21st century. I mean, you know, this is not like, you know, we're time to go lift weights, and we have TV, and, you know, we're growing a garden, and, you know, whatever. It's, it's not that kind of prison. I mean, I don't know, I didn't do any like, research on what prison life was like, but I'm sure it wasn't exactly the way it is now. Um, so it's not an easy, 
an easy way of living, of course. But the fact that Paul is able to write these words at all is a demonstration of the power at work within us that he mentions at the end of verse 20. So just to read the text very quickly. Um, well, actually, let me just read 14 through 21 just to kind of get, the, get it in our minds and just try to pay attention closely because, again, it's Paul, so you've got to pay attention. Um, so Ephesians 3, verse 14. For this, reason I bow, excuse me, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus, Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So this, this power that he talks about, you know, it's not, um, it's not something that's just, uh, these are not just pious words, you know, these are not just something, oh, that sounds good. God has power toward me. No, he's experiencing the power. The fact that he can write these words is a demonstration of the power of God because he's writing them from, from a place of being shackled. He's writing them from prison. He's in jail, right? So the very fact that he writes the words is a demonstration of God's power and specifically Christ's power at work in him. Um, the tone of praise and thanksgiving that permeates the letter as a whole, and this section in particular, kind of reminds us of Paul and Silas. I was just reading, uh, Ethan and I are reading through Acts and reading about the part famously where Paul and Silas are, are beaten with rods, it says, and then they're put in jail, and it gives the details. They have guards stationed there you know, with them, and they're put in shackles. And what do they do? Their, their response is not to woe is me or whatever because of their circumstances. It says they were singing, uh, singing and, and, and um, praying uh, singing praise to God from jail uh, and praying to God uh, after all this, you know. So clearly there was a power at work in them that just doesn't make sense aside from the work of God. You, know, you see the power of Christ in a way in suffering that you cannot see it in any other way. And that's just the way it is. Um, so if we want to know Christ, it's going to be through suffering in some way. I mean, I, you know, it, it, I, when I talk about suffering, I'm always, something in the back of my head always says to me, don't paint this overly negative picture, uh, you know, and I certainly don't want to do that. But suffering is the context of the New Testament. You can't escape that. I mean, that's the, and not just the context of the New Testament, but it's talked about in such a way as to point out that it's going to be the context of all Christians everywhere until Christ comes back. In some places more than others, of course, but that is our lot, right, to, you know, if they call the master of the house, house a devil, right, he's a bold, how much more members of, members of his own household, if we're going to be associated with Christ, we're going to have to be at least willing to bear the reproach of Christ, you know, to go outside the camp with him, to bear his shame. Um, that's just what it means to be a Christian. Um, but having said that, I also want to say there's power at work within us, brothers and sisters. And these passages like this are so vital to really um, have them permeate your heart and soul to see that this is not something, the reason I bring all this up is to say these are not just mere lofty, pious words. Paul's not some theoretical practitioner. He's a, he's a practitioner in the fullest sense. I mean, Paul's main occupation is not theologian. We think of him that way sometimes because he's so brilliant and, 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 all, and all that's true. But Paul's main occupation is missionary. That's what he is, right? He's a missionary. And he has a heart for sinners and a heart for the saints, and he writes accordingly. But his, his writing is born out of, it comes out of and flows out of a place of willingness to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to people and to see the saints encouraged, right? Even if that means going to prison, right? Which, of course, he, he did. Um, so it's not pious religious language. Paul was shown, as it says in Acts 9, that uh, how Jesus tells, you know, tells Ananias that he's going to show Paul how much he must suffer for the name of Christ. Uh, but the suffering also resulted in his mind being filled with the glories of Christ, as we were just talking about. Uh, his body was in a prison cell, but his mind was in the heavenly places, seated at God's right hand. You know, um, he, The fact that he was in prison didn't in any way uh, lim limit God's ability to work in his, his life. As a matter of fact, it did the very opposite. It engendered uh, a depth of understanding of God that he would not have had 
in any, any other way, any other context. So, of course, the, the very obvious application is when we have hard things brought into our lives, we really, 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 really ought not to kick against the goads, as it were, you know, to borrow another term pertaining to Paul. But we really ought to accept those things as from the, from the Father, knowing that if God calls us to a circumstance that is um, difficult, painful, whatever, multiply words, uh, that he will also, because he never leaves us or forsake us, forsakes us, give us what we need. He will strengthen us in our inner man uh, in Christ. Uh, that's, that's what he does. So, you know, uh, uh, Matt mentioned John Bunyan, and I put him in my, actually, notes here, uh, thinking about Pilgrim's Progress, and I'm sure most of us know a little bit about John Bunyan. I'm not going to go into like that biography of John Bunyan, but basically, like Paul, he was in prison for the gospel for 12 years, and he wrote, uh, uh, what's the, not the Pilgrim's Progress, but the other famous one, um, yes, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, thank you, just totally went out of my head. Uh, he wrote that while he was in prison, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, which is sort of his spiritual autobiography, and he started writing the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, I have several copies of the Pilgrim's Progress at home, but one of them that I bought years and years and years ago has um, scripture references down the margin. It's just unbelievable, really, how much scripture is, is referenced. You know, not that Bunyan put it in, but just the very obvious references to, to, to where he drew from when he was you know, coming up with the characters and, and the story of the Pilgrim's Progress. Now, you really think that, that he would have been able to write that book in those books had he not been in prison for 12 years? I don't think so. And likewise, Paul wouldn't have written the letter that we have here, the letter to the Ephesians, as we call it, had he not been in prison for however long it was. Um, this did something in him to, to elevate his mind to the heavenly places. Um, so, uh, let's see where I want to go here. Um, yeah, so basically he just went on and on in my notes here about this, but th basically this, this text and this book is written by someone who, who is experiencing the power himself. He is an ex he's writing from a place of experience. So when he tells us these things, you know you're getting it from a good source. It's not someone who is uncredentialed. He's credentialed in these things. He, he knows what it's like. Um, so the key thing to note is that, uh, is that Paul knows that God can free, free him from prison at any time, but that isn't his focus. He, in, in no place in the letter, even asked for prayer to be released from prison. Now, he, in, in Philippians, it's a little different. He talks about this some. But in, in Ephesians, he doesn't. He doesn't mention it at all. Now, would you, if I was in prison, <laughs> if you were in prison, and you were going to write a letter to your Christian friends, do you think you would ask them to pray for your release from prison? I think I would. <laughs> It'd probably be like the first thing i put. Hello, guys. By the way, you remember, I'm in prison. Could you pray for me so I could get out of here? That's not Paul. Um, and it's not because he doesn't want to get out of prison. I mean, I don't think he wanted to be there. Um, but he realizes that there's, some, there's something else going on. There's a reason that he's there. And you know this because he says in, for example, chapter 3, verse 1, for this reason, how does he characterize himself? I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. So that's how he regards himself as the prisoner, not of the Roman Empire or Caesar or something like that. He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He says the same thing. Again, in the uh, beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, therefore, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, which is referring to Christ Jesus, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, etc. So this is his, you know, when he conceives of himself in prison, he doesn't conceive of himself under the thumb of Roman oppressors and in need of release. He conceives of himself as bound by Christ, as it were. Christ has the shackles on him, right? not the Roman authorities. And he knows the very second that Christ decides to release those shackles, the shackles fall off and he's out of there. But until that point, he's fine with it, in a sense. I mean, I don't mean to say again that he's not happy, I'm sure, in a sense to be in chains, but, but he's, he's perfectly content to be there because he knows that God is at work in the midst of his sufferings. We need to be the same way, brothers and sisters. There's not too much to ask that we would seek the same attitude. We, actually, we must have the same attitude. That when we're in the midst of suffering, that we embrace it and realize that God is at work in us in those things in a way that he cannot do otherwise. Um, so that's, that's key. Uh, in short, Paul has his, has his priorities in the right place, and it's precisely for this reason that he's able to write letters of encouragement, instruction, admonition, from a heart filled with praise and thanks to God and Christ. Paul doesn't view his situation as limiting because he knows that God's power and resources are unlimited. You see, that's, that's the key. He, he realizes that though he is limited, 
Like he says in Acts, though, though I'm bound, I'm in shackles, the gospel's not bound, right? He, he knows that the limitation is, on, is there in, you know, he's limited, of course, but God is not limited. God has unlimited power. That's why he says what he says in verse 20, which we're going to talk about right now. So to get into the text a little more, that's all kind of introduction, let's look at the text more specifically, looking at verse 20. So just to read it again, 20 and 21, it's a doxology. Now to him, which is a word of praise. Doxa means praise or fame or glory. Um, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now when we strip out the modifiers, sort of, uh, Paul is essentially saying to God be the glory forever. Like if you kind of strip out all the extra stuff that makes it kind of like, okay, Paul, where are we going here? You know, kind of mind bending. If you kind of strip it out, that's what you get. To God be the glory forever. That's what he's saying. But when you add the modifiers back in, it's so much richer. And that's what I'm thankful for. Though I'm in some sense still intimidated by Ephesians to read it because, because of all these rich details to what Paul says. It's, it is so much richer with those things in there, right? So through his prayer of praise, Paul does essentially three things here. So the first one we're going to talk about is what he says in verse 20. He describes one of the attributes of God that makes him worthy of praise with an implicit motivation to draw near and continued prayer. So I'll read that just one more time just because we're going to talk about that for a second. So the first thing he's doing in this prayer of praise is to describe one of the attributes of God that makes him worthy of praise with an implicit motivation to draw near and continued prayer. So he says, he writes rather, him, to him who is able, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So whatever our limitations might be, and they are vast, right? Limitations on every level, right? Mentally, uh, spiritually, whatever, whatever words you want to, however you want to define that verbally. We are limited people because we are people. We are human beings. We have natural limitations, whatever they are. And Paul has them too, right? Paul is concerned to help his readers understand that God isn't limited. That's really the point of why he says what he says here. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. God is not limited. That's the point. God is overflowing with everything his people need to carry out their mission and to make it to the end. So it, my mind kind of went to 2 Peter 1, 2, where Peter writes, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So you hear, you hear a similar thing here that Peter's saying. We have the, the notion of power. There's divine power, right, that comes from God, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. Not some of the things we need. Everything we need comes from God. We are amply supplied by God. In fact, none of it comes from us, right? So the minute we start to think that something comes from us, we're in a bad way. We need to back up and realize, no, everything we have, what have you, you know, what, what do you have that you haven't received, right? I mean, it's all free grace. Everything we have comes from God, and it's everything we need for life and godliness, godliness to live in such a way that we please and honor the Lord. Um, so in Ephesians, Paul has more to say along these lines. Again, he stacks up the words like I was talking about at the beginning. He has this lofty, exalt, exalted language that is trying to capture something about this unlimited nature of God and the richness of God. So just to read a few, in a few places, in um, chapter 1, verse 7, he talks about, uh, let's see, in him we have redemption through his blood. So he talks about God the Father first and he moves to Christ. It's a Trinitarian formula here. Um, so he's, he's talking about Christ. In him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to this is the standard here, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Now listen, listen to that language. He could have just said, according to his grace, and that will be true, right? But he doesn't just say, according to his grace. He says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. So he's stressing the fact that God doesn't just have grace. He has rich grace, and he lavishes that grace on us. It's abundant grace, you know. It's way above and beyond anything that we could expect from God or want God to do. He excels and exceeds uh, what our expectations are. Um, so that's just one place. Then if you move forward in chapter 1 to verse 18, he says, and this is his first prayer uh, in, the, in the letter. He says, I pray 
excuse me, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, so there's that, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us, to, us who believe. So same thing again, riches of his glory. He doesn't just have glory, he has riches of his glory. And it's not just power, it's surpassing power that he has. Again, Paul is concerned to elevate this rich, the, the rich nature of God's resources toward the saints, toward us, right? Um, and let's see, just to move on again, uh, coming to chapter three, uh, and there are more places we could go, but these are just some of the key things. In the prayer that he, he begins praying in 14, he says in 16, verse 16 of chapter 3, uh, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, again, to be strengthened with power uh, through his spirit in the inner man, etc. So there's this, and then he talks about the surpassing knowledge, um, uh, this love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. Again, I mean, that, doesn't even, that seems contradictory, doesn't it? To know the love of Christ which goes beyond knowledge. Well, that doesn't make sense, Paul. That's a contradiction. That's it's a rhetorical thing, right? He's trying to say, you can't get a grasp on this love of Christ. It goes beyond what you can grasp, but you should still try to grasp it. But you'll never grasp it. You see what I'm saying? It, you'll never exhaust the riches of Christ's love for you. It's not possible, but you should still try. That's Paul's point. Um, God's not stingy. He's not miserly toward us, his people. He's not short of resources in any way. Um, but in this prayer, uh, this uh, praise and prayer, whatever you want to say, prayer praise, um, he, there's an expectation that we both feel our need for him and orient our, our dreams, our wishes, our desires toward, uh, in our very lives, toward his will and his ways. So by saying this, by saying, yeah, God's able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, there's kind of an assumption here that we ask and think, right? There's an assumption that we go to God in prayer and that we're meditating on the things of Christ, the things of God, the things that God cares about, and that that, that meditation drives us to God's throne to ask for things. So do you go to God's throne and ask for things? And what are those things, right? And there's nothing wrong with asking for um, someone to be healed from sickness. I mean, that's in the New Testament. There's nothing wrong with praying that someone would get a job. That's fine. Those are all good things and things we should be praying for. But when Paul prays prayers in the letters, he often, he, he is more expansive in his vision. And we need, to, we need to be more expansive in our vision of the kingdom of God and what Christ, who Christ is and what he is doing and has done and will do. Because when we orient ourselves to the epic nature, the, the grand nature of God's redemptive plan that he's you know, summing up in Christ, we will pray differently, brothers and sisters. And I'm convicted myself because I struggle with prayer, to be honest. But this letter has done something for me. And I'm not, I hope it sticks, but I'm just saying like, you know, we need to get our heads like Paul in the heavenly places where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because when we do, we will pray differently. We will, we will see the need to pray for these things. You know, to pray for strengthening in the inner man. To pray for, uh, to be able to grasp the ungraspable graspable love of Christ. We will pray those things. Um, if we orient ourselves the way Paul is doing. Um, and God, uh, well, let's see what I put here. Sorry. As a result, we will think. Let me just read what I wrote here so I'm not off track. As a result, we will think and ask for things from God. And those things will align with the things God cares about too, which I've already said. So can we all get to the point where we can honestly say, like Paul, that we do all things for the sake of the gospel? I can't say that about myself, that I do all things. I do some things for the sake of the gospel. Can I honestly say I do all things for the sake of the gospel? I don't think Paul is using hyperbole when he says that. I really don't. I think it's reflected in the letters of Paul that every single thing he does is oriented toward the gospel. Everything. So we need to see that that's not an unreachable or unattainable uh, goal to have to say that we ourselves do all things for the sake of the gospel. That is the expectation. Because God's gospel is glorious. Why would we not do all things for the sake of the gospel? What are we doing all things for then if it's not for the sake of the gospel? I mean, what's better than the gospel? Right? What's better than the gospel? There's nothing better than the gospel. The good news of Christ is the greatest thing. So we need to get to the place in our own hearts and minds where we do all things for the sake of the gospel, like Paul can say about himself. Um, so in, in this text, he says, you know, that, that, that God, so there's this, um, this parsifial phrase he uses, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, that qualifies who God is. That's that attribute, that descriptor of God. God is the one who does 
far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Um, in keeping with this exalted, ecstatic language of Ephesians, Paul coins uh, what one scholar called a super superlative, which I like. I think that's good. A super superlative here. He coins this term by adding two prepositional prefixes to the front of this word, this Greek word. Again, he, he, he's like, I don't know how to say this really, so I'm just going to make up a new word because we need a new word for this. So, so he makes up this word that has two additional prepositional prefixes to the front of it to stress the highest possible degree of abundance that God has. God has a super abundance of resources at his disposal with the implication that he's ready and willing to use them for us and for the glory of himself. A super abundance. It's, it's not just, again, pious language. He's saying that God really is inexhaustible in his resources, including his power toward us. And if we could begin to grasp just a, you know, a mustard seed, as Jesus says, of pertaining to faith, but a mustard seed of, of this power that he has, we would live differently. Again, I would live differently if we could grasp the power that God has toward us in Christ. Um, small faith, sadly, leads to small prayers, but God is not limited by the scope of our prayers even in our sort of less than mustard seed, genuine prayers, you know, when we, we pray but we're, and we're genuine, but it's not really maybe at the level that we should be, God will still go far more abundantly beyond what we think is possible, you know? So my point is that God isn't limited. When we pray genuinely and God sees our heart in faith, God honors that and adds to it, you know? It's not as if like, I don't know, I'm just thinking of an example off my head. Like I pray for three neighbors around me in my neighborhood. And God's like, well, I, I would have put, you know, I would have saved five of them, praying for them that the Lord would save them. I would have saved five if you prayed for the other two over here in the cul-de-sac. But since you didn't, I'm not going to save them, right? It's like, that's not how it is. Like, God will honor our prayers, and he's not limited by the fact we only prayed for three. Like, he'll go above and beyond that, right? He'll save all five of them. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's how he is. Um, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a mysterious thing. Prayer is a mysterious thing, and I don't want to be heretical when I say this. I, I kind of thought about, oh, should I say this or not? Because I don't know if this is the right thing to say, but I'm just going to read what I wrote and you can talk to me about it later. But prayer is a mysterious thing because there's a sense in which we want to say that God isn't depending on our prayers to make things happen. I mean, he, he, he's sovereign. He does what he wants to do in a sense. But on the other hand, God throughout the scriptures is attentive to our prayers and does expect us to pray and does respond to those prayers, right? It's sort of a hard thing to, to really grasp. The main point, though, is that God takes our faith expressed through prayer and does greater things than we can even conceive of. He really does. Regardless of how it all works out in the end, we are to pray and God will act. And he will do more than you ask for because that's how he is. God is an abundant, gracious, overflowing, lavish, whatever. God, add to it. You know, that's who he is. That's what he does. Um, he's moved, but Paul rather, is moved to pray audacious things like 319, which is crazy, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you will be filled up to all the fullness of God, of God, the fullness of God. You hear that? How full is God? The fullness of God? I don't even know what that looks like or means, but that's his prayer. It seems like an unreachable goal that, that he would pray that, but he does. He prays for these people that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God, that they would have a sense of the glory of Christ to the full, right? Um, and so we need to pray that way too, of course. Um, so that's point one, that God, God is described in this way, that he is, he is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So that's, that's the first, first thing. The second thing is Paul locates the place where God's abundant, abundant power is at work, which is within us. So he says... Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. He locates the place where God's abundant power is at work. It's within us, meaning Christians, the church. Um, this part of the doxology links back to what he's already said and, and actually prayed earlier in verse 16 and introduced even earlier in 1, 18 through 22. So in verse 16, he says, as Dylan went over last week, um, he said, of chapter 3, I'm sorry, verse 16, chapter 3 that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. So again, Paul's in jail. He needs strength himself, but he's asking that God would strengthen others. That's just crazy. You know, he, he's not concerned about his own strength or being able to withstand the hardships. He's concerned about the strength of other Christians. He's namely concerned that this Christians that he's writing to would be discouraged because of his imprisonment. He's wanting them to have strength. They wouldn't be disheartened or discouraged because he's in jail. Isn't that just remarkable? I mean, that's, to me, 
all the apologetics aside, you just see, like, when you read the New Testament, Paul's real. Like, he's a real dude. He's saying stuff that's from his heart. And this is a real person. Um, so the proof of the Bible being the Word of God is the fact that it is what it is. And when you read it, and it just strikes you as like, this is not the Quran. This is, the, this is, this is real. These are real people going through real things, you know? Um, so that's, again, an aside, but I think it's true. Um, clearly, Paul thinks his readers need strengthening and power from God. And we are no different. I'm sure if Paul was writing a letter to NCCF, Greenville, or NCCF, C-A-R, he would write the same kind of things because we, the saints always need strengthening, right? The saints always need this power from God. Uh, it's when we start to move away from thinking that we don't need power that we're really in trouble. When we think we don't need to abide in the vine, abide in Christ Jesus. There's so much to that, you know, that we, we don't begin to think that we are self-sufficient and we don't need the Lord. I know Chris talks about this a lot, but it's absolutely true, you know? Because when you start thinking you don't really, you know, need God that much, that you're okay, where's grace, right? I mean, where's, Paul says, where is boasting? It's not in ourselves, it's in Christ, right? I mean, he says it in this very letter, chapter 2, right? Famously, he says, not as, not as a, we're not saved as a result of works, and no one may boast. I mean, that's the point. We boast in God. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, right? We boast in God because he's the one who's great. He's the one who's sufficient and, pr- and provides everything we need, and, and namely, of course, redemption. So we boast in him. He's the one who gives us power and strength and everything we need for life and godliness, um, so let's, I want to say two things about this power that Paul mentions here, the power within us. First of all, it's sourced from outside of us, but at work within us through the Spirit. So I'll just say that again. It's sourced from outside of us, but at work within us, as he says, through the Spirit. So uh, just thinking of illustrations, this came to mind. I, don't, I never know if illustrations are good or bad. You can tell me if it was like it fell on deaf ears or it's good. But has anybody seen the movie Edge of Tomorrow? With Tom Cruise. I like science fiction movies. It's kind of, so just to, I mean, it's not a hard movie to grasp. It's basically, without going into all the plot, you got, it's a science fiction movie. It's guys fighting aliens. And to fight the aliens, they need these like exoskeleton robotic suits they wear. Okay. So Tom Cruise is sort of like against his will, drafted into this fight against these aliens. And, he, and he, he, the only way he can fight them or any of them can fight uh, the aliens is to wear these, these exoskeleton, like super armored robotic suits or whatever. And I just thought, you know, that's exactly how it is with the Holy Spirit, you know. Um, The only difference being that the suit's outside of the person in the movie and the Spirit's in us. But it's the same concept, you know. Like, the minute in the movie, the minute the suit comes off, the guys are obliterated. The soldiers are obliterated. You know, the suit is what gives them the the advantage, the ability to defeat the aliens or whatever. And likewise, the Spirit at work within us is what gives us our our strength and our power. And the minute we stop relying on the Holy Spirit, we are dead in the water. We really are. Uh, We really are. And there's no mysticism here. It's just really that there is the Holy Spirit right? And He really does work in us. And if, if, if God withdrew His Spirit, from us in any, in any way or any time, which he's not going to because he promised he wouldn't. But if he did, we would be sinning like crazy. We'd have no vision of Christ. You know what I'm saying? The Spirit is such a, the, the coming of the Spirit is such an amazing thing, brothers and sisters. And we need to thank God every day, honestly, that we have the Holy Spirit because we would be goners without the Spirit. Um, it's a really big deal that the Spirit came um, at Pentecost. And there's much more that could be said about that, but I'm not going to get off on that. So, um, the reason I bring up the Spirit is because you're like, where's the Spirit in the passage? Well, Paul, again, is, it's not an isolated text. He's referencing sort of back what he already said. In verse 16, he says, to be strengthened with power, how? Through his Spirit in the inner man, right? So, again, the power comes through the Spirit. The Spirit of God is what gives us our power. Um, so that's the first point. It's sourced from outside, but it's at work within us. So Paul, you know, in, in, in 2 Corinthians, he talks about what they have, the, the, the treasure of the gospel, it's, what, it's in what? A jar of clay, a vessel of clay, right? It's, it's contained in an earthen vessel that is weak and frail, but it's this, that's where God in his wisdom has chosen to situate the gospel in vessels that are nothing, are frail, but there's a power that works out of that, that vessel, you know, which is obvious in what Paul, you know, Paul's able to do um, for Christ. It's just remarkable. Um, so the second point is this, that it's a tremendous power that God has for us. Um, you would think that Paul would go to, I mean, thinking about power, I don't know where your mind goes, but when I'm thinking about God's power, I sort of, in the first place, go to creation, right? 
which is a good place to go, God, through his, you know, his, his power and his wisdom, made the world. And that testifies to God as he's there and he's awesome. He created everything, right? But Paul doesn't actually go there when he thinks of God's power. Again, being in the context of Ephesians, let's just flip over one chapter or two chapters to chapter one. Um, and let's read verse 18 again, um, just to kind of see where Paul goes, thinking about power. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about when he created the world, no, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's what Paul is trying to say about power. That power is demonstrated at the resurrection. That is God's power. That he took this man who was in the thralls of death and he exalted him to the place of dominion and authority at the right hand of God. Not just the place of dominion, but far above, far above all dominion and rulers and authority. Not just there on par with them, but far above. So it's the, it's the this spatial metaphor he uses of from, from the grave to the heavens, the, the highest heavens that Paul sees where he sees power situated and located. So when we think of power, we need to think of resurrection. And what does Paul say in chapter 1 here? He says, these are in accordance with, in accordance with the working of his, the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and so forth. But before this, he says, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? This same power is available to us, brothers and sisters, toward us who believe, right? So this is, a, this is something that God has for you in Christ. Are you availing yourself of it? Or are you, and am I, walking according to the flesh? Do we think we got it made in the shade when we depend on ourselves? You know, we don't need God. We don't need the Spirit. We do. We really do need the Spirit. Okay? And we're going to be more practical in just a second. Because what does that mean, need the Spirit? How do we have the Spirit you know, at work in our lives? I want to say something about that. So we'll get to that next. Um, so it's a, a tremendous power that's at work in us. Resurrection power is at work in us. We are... You know, we're going, we're going from one degree of glory to another, aren't we? We're, we're in transition. Unfortunately, that phrase is used in a very different context these days, in transition. But as Christians, we're in transition. But it's not in that way. It's in this, this way of from one degree of glory to another, right? We're moving from, from the grave to the heavens, just like Jesus, because we're united to him. His, his life and death and, and, and death, burial, resurrection, life that he lives is lived for us. We are right there with him. Romans 6, right? We are united to him in that. And he loves us and he is for us. And we have newness of life now with Christ. And we're moving ahead, brothers and sisters, in faith, in Christ. It's a tremendous power. Um, some of us, me too, are probably thinking and have thought, well, okay, yeah, I agree. God's powerful. All right, of course. And he can demonstrate his power in me that way. I know he can do that. But he really isn't. I mean, I don't see that in my life. I don't see. It's one thing to read about Paul having this. Okay, that's great for Paul. Hurrah, hurrah. But what about me? I'm not Paul. You know, where's my power? Where's my resurrection power and work of the Spirit? Why don't I experience that? That's a good question, right? You ever thought that? <laughs> you know, when you read, you're like, oh, that seems like kind of lofty and unattainable, Paul. You're a little hyperbolic there. I'm kind of over here trying to work and take care of kids or whatever, you know. What does this have to do with my life? Well, Let's talk about that for a second, because that's the point. Um, I have four questions. So when we're trying to address the question of, okay, we should be you know, walking in the power of the Spirit and, and, you know, and, 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 and living in the, you know, with this reality in mind that Christ is for us, and resurrection power, but he maybe isn't, four questions. Uh, first question, and this is the question we should ask. Are we grieving the Holy Spirit with sin? So you ask yourself, well, I'm not, I don't have this power that you're talking about, that Paul's talking about, so why not? Well, are we grieving the Holy Spirit with sin? Same letter, Ephesians 4, verse 30. Uh, Paul says, Paul writes, um, let's see. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So the two things I want to read those, I did read those verses together because they go together. So when he talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, what Paul has in mind primarily is these things in, in verse 31. That's how we grieve the Spirit. We often think it's kind of different sins, like it's, I don't know, the way that we group sins or, or categorize them is usually not very biblical, to be honest. <laughs> we think that our, our priorities with sin is sometimes different than God's. I mean, the things that God cares about in this passage, at least, are like bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. These things need to be put away from us because those things will, will grieve the Holy Spirit. Those things are really evil things to God. You know? and, and the things that flow out of that that we think are really, really worse, which they are, I mean, like murder and adultery and so forth, it starts here. So Paul is... Paul is, is concerned to go to the root of the matter, not to say, well, yeah, don't murder each other. Well, yeah, duh, but, you know, most Christians aren't going to go out and murder each other. That's not, you know, it's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is you start out with this little bitty root of bitterness or this anger or whatever it is, and that starts to grow to the point where you start to hate your brother or sister in your heart to the point where maybe you could actually murder them, you know? I mean, that, that's, that's what Paul is thinking when he says these things. So these things greed the Holy Spirit. And you need to be, and I need to be diagnostic about these things and read these texts and think, do I have any of this going on? And maybe if I do, then maybe, probably, I'm grieving the Holy Spirit and God is not able to work in me the way that he wants to. It's not that God doesn't want to work in you. I mean, you know what I'm saying? God wants to work in you. It's not like that. It's that we sometimes, oftentimes, put other things, put these roadblocks in the way so that God can't push through, you know? I mean, we do, in that sense, limit what God can do in us, right? By our sin. Um, so th there's that. Um, the second thing is, are we, are we replacing or, or trading in his filling with the Spirit or by the Spirit for being filled with other things? Um, so same letter again, Ephesians 5, Paul talks about this filling by or with the Spirit. Um, he says, chapter 5, verse um, 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled Again, by or with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So, um, sorry, let me make sure I did I flip it. I might have skipped a page. Hold on. This is the thing about having notes, you know, I'm trying to follow where you work. Uh, let's see here, sorry. Okay, first question, yeah, here we go. Um, so there's a question here in this text um, that we have to kind of address just briefly. It's a kind of a grammatical point, but it does make somewhat of a difference. So, uh, so bear with me for just like two minutes. So Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation. So when you get drunk with wine, it's, it's being filled with wine, right? That's, that's, what, that's what it actually is saying here. Don't be filled with wine, um, but be filled uh, what is it? Is it by or with? Well, it could be either. I mean, it can go either way. The NASB says, um, says with the Spirit. What, does anyone have anything else? I didn't look at a bunch of different translations. Does anyone have by or anything else other than with? I think we know better than to use things like the NIV around here in the message, so we're probably using like all NASB or ESV or something, or ASV. Uh, uh, so anyways, so in the Greek text, it's not exactly clear. It's a little bit ambiguous. So just to say something about this, um, it could be either with, which is an instrumental use that we're filled with the spirit. And it doesn't tell, Paul's not telling us what we're actually filled with, but it's, it's done by the spirit. It's an act done by the spirit or, um, and the context seems to point sort of in, you know, more of a, that, that you're filled I'm sorry, I said that wrong. With is you're filled with the Spirit is in in, in you this uh, instrumental use or by which is the means the means so the Spirit fills you you don't know what it's with but it's by the Spirit okay so um, sorry that was confusing let me read this one more time on filled with with versus by context points toward sort of with the instrumental use because you're filled with wine likewise we need a parallel you know be filled with the Spirit. But grammatically, the structure everywhere else, the way this structure is used in the New Testament, by seems to be more supported. So just to, in context, or not context, but in the context of the New Testament, another passage that sort of sounds this way is Romans 15, 
now may the God of hope fill you with all joy. So, you know, you're filled with these things, joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's a, you're, he tells you what you're filled with. It's not the Spirit. You're filled with joy and peace and believing, but it's by, and that, that's the means use, you're filled by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the question is, you know, which way does it go here? Well, I'm just going to quote Peter T. O'Brien in his commentary because it kind of summed it up in a good way. So I'm just going to read this. Um, so this guy wrote, In the light of these earlier instances of the fullness language in Ephesians, we conclude that the content with which believers have been or are being filled is the fullness of the triune God or of Christ. No other text in Ephesians or elsewhere in Paul focuses specifically on the Holy Spirit as the content of this fullness. Okay, so he and lots of other scholars think the correct translation would be to be filled by the Spirit. And then Paul in this passage doesn't tell you exactly what particularly you're being filled with. But the broader point I want to make is that either way, whichever way you translate it, whether it's by or with, the point is that we can squelch the Spirit's work in our lives through our sin. That's, that's the thing. We can actually, um, you know, we can, we can grieve the Holy Spirit and we can stifle the Holy Spirit's work and we can begin to, in this, con in this context, we can begin to trade. This is the trade thing. We trade the filling by or with the Spirit for another filling. You see what I'm saying? That's why I come to this text because it's not just about grieving the Holy Spirit with our sin. It's about, we don't just, it's not like we say, okay, I don't want you, God, but I'm here in this neutral zone. No, we replace God with something else. That's called idolatry, <laughs> right? We think that something, we get our, we're going to get our kicks in some way, right? And in the, in the context here, Paul's saying like, some of you might be tempted to go to alcohol, you know, for, for your kicks. And I'm not going to get on this right now. If, if that's a problem for you, you need to address it. If, if drunkenness is a problem for you, I don't know, but I, I don't think that's a problem, but it doesn't stop there. Right? So we can, we can be filling up ourselves, our spirit as it were with all kinds of other things that are stifling or are blocking the ability for God to fill us by or with his spirit. So that's, that's the point. All right, so that's, that's, that's the first thing. So sin can negate the work of the Spirit in some, in some way. Uh, second point, I know it's 1228, but here we go. I'll try to wrap this up quickly-ish. Um, second point, are we unwilling to let God put us in circumstances where God can demonstrate his power to us through the Spirit? So this is an easy point to make because we already kind of made it. Paul is in this context of being, sorry, of being, um, in jail, he's put in a context where God can demonstrate his power. It's like the more he's crushed, the more he's pounded in the pestle, the more goodness comes out of it, right? So we have to likewise be willing to let God put us in the mortar and pestle and, and grind us to bits sometimes because he's going to bring good out of that, you know? He's going to uh, use that to, to bring us where we need to be and to use us for his kingdom. Um, so that's the second point, which is pretty straightforward, just, you know, thing to grasp. Uh, third point is this about the Spirit working in our lives. Are we keeping our eyes on Jesus? Um, if not, God cannot fill us, cannot fill us with His Spirit because the Spirit's role is to point to and magnify Christ's glorifying work. Okay? That's what the Spirit does. The Spirit's, you know, the Spirit has been called by whoever first said this, but the shy person of the Trinity. Okay? Well, that's, I don't know if that's good language, but the point is that the Spirit does not draw attention to Himself so much as. He is the, the mirror that redounds the glory to Christ. So the glory bounces off of him and he points us to Christ. So if we are not having our hearts filled with Christ and, and focused on Christ and his work for us, then the spirit is not going to be at work in our lives, brothers and sisters. He's really not going to be able to because that's his, goal. that's his role. That's his goal. That's what he does. He points us to Christ. He magnifies and glorifies Christ. So we have to, how do we focus on Christ? We, we do so by, of course, prayer, all the things we know to do. Prayer, being in the Word, fellowshipping with the saints, uh, evangelizing. I mean, all the things, you know, that, that we know that Christians just do. Um, and, and that's how we're, how we're keeping our focus on, on Christ in all those ways. Um, it's not rocket science. It's just doing it. It's hard, you know. It's the doing of it. Um, so remember that the same Paul who says he speaks in tongues more than everyone else in the Corinthian church, he was called up to the third heaven, is the same Paul who was shown again how much he must suffer, he must suffer for um, my name's sake. So he is, uh, he's, he, you know, he, he has his eyes on Jesus, and that doesn't always go in the direction that maybe the charismatic people would think it should go, in blessing in the, on earth. It's blessing in the heavenly places, right? We're already blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have it now. And so Paul has it, and he, uh, he, does, he has that because he's focused on Christ Jesus. 
Fourth thing is, and it comes out of this passage um, in, uh, actually that we just read in, in Ephesians 5, is uh, do we have habits of praise and thankfulness to God for what he has done for us in Christ? So Paul says in, in Colossians 3, another prison epistle, let the word of Christ, this is kind of parallel to our text in Ephesians, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So, you know, we want to cultivate a, in our own lives, we want to cultivate an atmosphere or environment where the spirit can be at work. And it doesn't come through pro tip. It doesn't come through being a grumbling, complaining person, (laughs) right? If you're a grumbling and complaining, spirit's not going to work in your life or my life. It's not going to happen. Because the spirit responds to, wants to be where there's a thankful heart to God, uh, a heart that's, that's moved by the grace of God, moved toward you know, a, a longing to see Christ glorified and a recognition of who he is and all he has done for us. And so if we want Christ to be, uh, want the Lord to be at work in us in his spirit, with his spirit, um, we have to be those kinds of folks. We have to do these things that Paul says, admonish one another in these ways. I don't know exactly what that means, but I know that music plays a vital part in our Christian existence. You know, um, There's something about it that moves us to you know, elevate our hearts to the Lord. So the last, the third point, final thing this morning is um, the last little piece of, back to Ephesians 3, the last little piece here is Paul says, uh, to him, <coughs> excuse me, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is kind of a unique statement here because nowhere else in any other doxology does Paul include this, uh, the church in Christ Jesus in the little ending piece in the doxology. But he does here. And it makes sense within the context of Ephesians because that's all he talks about in the letter is, is the way that Christ has, is, God is summing up everything in Christ through the church. Okay? So Jesus and his bride is the point of the story. That's a Big thing I want to just placard right here. When you think of the Bible, Jesus and his bride is the point of the story. Not just Jesus, not just the bride, Jesus and his bride. It's, and it's, they're not two different things because we are united with him in faith, right? It's Jesus and his bride that is the point of the story. God is glorious regardless of whether or not he ever created the universe. He's glorious even if humankind, you know, he creates us but we'd never fallen. He'd still be glorious. But in his wisdom... He created a world in which the most glory would come to him through people falling, him sending his son to redeem a people for himself. That's the love story. That's the ultimate love story. Jesus and his bride, that's the point. And it's the story of the, the Lord of glory. He mentions glory here, Christ being, you know, glory, you know, God being glorious. It's the Lord of glory dying for his rebel creatures. Someone said, uh, and I, I like this, I thought it was kind of memorable and helpful. Someone said the Bible story can be summed up as kill the dragon, get the girl. Yeah. I think that's pretty good. You know, that's about right. Kill the dragon, get the girl. That's really it. You know, like there's a threat to God's people, Satan and all his cohorts. And we're the girl, the bride of Christ. Right. So and what did he do? He, he totally destroyed him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities when he was placarded on the cross as for all, you know, all the heavenly creatures and beings to see that he has loved us and he's defeated them. Right. Um, so that's a great statement. Kill the, kill the dragon, get the girl. And if that wasn't enough, I'm going to wrap it up here, I promise. 1240, give me 1240, okay? Hang in there with me, because I have more to say. All right? So as if that wasn't enough, this is actually a really important point, so I want to make this point. The scope in Paul's mind is even wider because this expression of love that he talks about in this passage goes beyond... Um, this expression of love that goes beyond knowledge, surpassing knowledge, unfolds on the cosmic scale so that the rulers and authorities that I just mentioned a moment ago can be made to see how much Christ, how much love Christ has for those whom they attempted to destroy. So it's not, it's not just about us and Christ. It's the, the, what, Christ, what God does in Christ is on the cosmic theater. You know, the, the scene is on the cosmic scale, right? It unfolds for all creatures everywhere to see, but especially these rulers, these authorities. Um, So Paul talks about this in Ephesians 3, verse 10. Well, let's just, sorry, let's read. um, It's hard to know where to start because it's like one long sentence again, but verse 8, okay, 3, 8. To me, the very least of all the saints, so Paul is humble, right? He, He doesn't think he's anything great. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. There's another riches statement I missed. Um, and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, 
This is the part I want you to pay attention to. So that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church. So there's in our passage, he says the glory in the church and to Christ Jesus. Okay, so back to this. Wisdom of God, manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Or in the heavenly places, heavenly realm. All right? So in Paul's mind, he's thinking bigger than just, it's just about God and his people. It is, of course, but it's bigger than that. This whole thing is unfolding on the cosmic scale. There are principalities and powers, rulers and authorities that he talks about in chapter 6, again, of course, that see what's going on. And what, what Paul wants us to realize is that God has this great love for us that is being placarded across the heavens for these beings to see both, you know, for the, for the elect angels to rejoice along with us, you know, every, every sinner who repents, the angels in heaven rejoice, right? And for those who are disobedient, uh, you know, angels or, or heavenly beings to, to see, hey, they're defeated. They're powerless. And this would be encouraging for these people to see who are under, you know, oppression. But, you know, we should be encouraged too because, you know, Satan's defeated, right? I mean, he, he, like I wrote here, he, God will be glorified in his saints as he builds his worldwide church across space and time. And there's not a thing Satan can do about it but rage. Not a thing he can do but rage. That's all he can do. All right, which is not much because God, Christ has already won the victory, right? Um, isn't it interesting that Jesus himself ties these themes together when he says he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it? That's rulers and authorities, right? So there's this, you know, this suffering that we experience, this being put in the mortar and pestle. Yeah, God's doing it, but it's in the, it's in the we're here in the, where the prince of the power of the air is operating, right, in that sphere. And we're putting in the, being put in the mortar and pestle, but the, 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 what is it? Which one's the mortar? Mortar, pestle, whatever. The pestle, whatever it is, the little stick. <laughs> That's Satan, right? And he's, you know, God is kind of using him sometimes to grind us down, right? But God is using him. It's a tool. Satan's a tool, Right? It's a tool to be used to bring us to where we need to go. So when God has his hand on it, there's nothing that Satan can do to us but rage, right? Um, so I want to say just two things sort of as, this is sort of a discernment thing. Um, I know, gosh, can I do this in two minutes? Okay, I'm going to do it in two minutes. Two things I want you guys to be careful, for, careful about, just kind of popular things that maybe some of you might be aware of. Some, one of these you definitely are aware of, but... Um, when we're talking about the principalities and powers, these you know, rulers and authorities, some folks uh, are making a lot of hay about these types of passages throughout the whole Bible. Um, one of those guys is Michael Heiser. You guys know about Michael Heiser, that name? I'm not going to go into this for a long time, but basically uh, there are many ways to kind of get off track or be heretical, right? So one of them is to add to or take away, like Revelation warns about that, this letter not to add to or take away the words of God. So obviously if you're adding to the scripture or taking away from it, that's heresy. Another way is to just totally misinterpret what's there. You know, this happens all the time with the health and wealth you know, crowd. They, they say, oh, yeah, they're biblical. They say it was in the Bible, but it's like totally wacko. Like, this is not what it means, right? So that's another way to be heretical. Another way to get, you know, I'm not saying Michael Heiser is a heretic. I'm not saying that. But another way to move in that direction is to get out of balance or proportion. And quite honestly, I think this is the most common way and the thing we have to be really careful about because it's, it's a subtle, uh, subtle thing. So... You can get out of balance or proportion with what God says, and it results in a wrong emphasis on what is there in the text. You follow what I'm saying? So, for, so Michael Heiser and, and some folks who like what he says, I like some of what he says too, but, but it's like everything is about these principalities and powers, and it's like that's the thing that's foregrounded. And then you're like, well, what about Christ and like his people? And I mean, it's like it's kind of like shoehorned in back here. It's like, no, I think it's kind of the other way around. Like Paul definitely has in mind principalities and powers. He's thinking cosmically on this scale. But that's not really where the focus is, right? So just be careful about that. I don't want to say any more about that. Just, you know, people have some good things to say, but sometimes they, they, they find an insight and they run with it and they want to reinterpret everything through that insight. And N.T. Wright does the same thing. Lots of scholars do this because they have to write books and make money, right? So just be careful about that. These sort of people that get famous and, you know, all right, I have something good to say, but, but just be careful. I was going to make another point about dispensationalism. If you want to talk to me about it later, I'll say it. I'm not going to say it now because it's 1240. So, um, so last thing, this is a Trinitarian passage. Um, I know I said last thing. This is the last, last thing. It's a Trinitarian passage, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's for us, brothers and sisters. And the motivation as he goes into four through six on the commands, it's not about, you know, guilt to do these things. It's about glory and grace. The little statement I wrote down here, which is just so great, you know, that I came up with it. Uh, what did I write down? Something that was good, I thought, uh, if I can find it. Mm, probably can't. 
Uh, okay, I'm just going to read this what I read. Um, the main motivation for living a holy life before the Lord, which is what 4 through 6 is going to touch on, isn't guilt. We need to hear that, don't we? It isn't guilt, but it's glory undergirded by, by grace and fueled by love. Now, we could unwrap that in another sermon, but that's, that's the truth, right? It's not guilt that the reason we do these things, keep the law of God, the commands of God. It's not guilt. It's glory that we're looking ahead to, God's glory and our glory. They're bound together, undergirded by grace. We start out with grace. We need grace every day and fueled by love. The, the motivation in our heart for doing what we do, the thing that puts fuel in our tank is love, right? Love. To love God, love others is to fulfill the law, right? So let's not lose any of those pieces. Glory, grace, love, we need them all to live before the Lord. And we'll pray. So thank you all for hanging with me. Sorry, so long, but thank you. Lord, uh, we thank you for your grace toward us, that you love us in Christ, and that you will never leave us or forsake us. And we ask you to um, just fill our hearts today and this week and help us to pray to you in a way that's honoring to you where we ask things that are audacious and we believe in our hearts that you will do them and you will do them for Christ's sake. And, and that we'd have that, just our hearts tuned to that same frequency, Lord, of, of Paul's just being in the heavenlies. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.